Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood, the usual two guests today. After I do a little economic update, the Portland-based journalist Jason Wilson will tell us what's been going on in that city as Trump's stormtroopers confront a large and persistent crew of protesters. And at the bottom of the hour, Forrest Hilton in Medellin will report on COVID-19, repression, corruption, and gang violence in South America. A few words in the U.S. economy. The late spring recovery now looks to be hitting a wall as the coronavirus spreads across the south and west, forcing many states to shelve or reverse their reopening plans. According to a new Census Bureau weekly household pulse survey, the number of employed Americans declined by almost 7 million from mid-June through mid-July, with the bulk of the decline happening in early July. Also, applications for unemployment insurance rose 109,000 last week, the first increase since March 21st. That brings the number of applications to almost 53 million since the crisis began. Many of those applicants look to have been recalled to work since, but such recalls are looking increasingly scarce. The total number drawing benefits in both traditional state programs and the special pandemic assistance program for people like freelancers who aren't eligible for traditional benefits is now over 30 million. The additional $600 a week unemployment benefits that were part of the pandemic stimulus bill are expiring, and it's looking like Congress won't be extending them just yet. And if they do, the benefits are likely to be at a much less generous level, because as Treasury Secretary and Goldman Sachs alum Steve Mnuchin put it, we're going to make sure that we don't pay people more money to stay home than go to work. There's a good reason why say the quiet part out loud has become a cliché lately. It's impossible to exaggerate how important those expanded benefits have been to helping millions make ends meet and keeping the economy from collapsing further. Right now, the top Republican legislative priority looks to be shielding businesses from lawsuits should people get sick from being forced back on the job. Further evidence of the stalling of the May-June economic recovery? A near-real-time spending tracker based on debit and credit card data produced by Opportunity Insights shows spending down almost 2% between June 21st and July 12th, led by consumers in low-income zip codes. If the job market continues to soften and expanded unemployment benefits evaporate, we're going to be in deep economic and human trouble. But not everyone is tightening belts. Hedge funder Bill Ackman raised $4 billion for what's known as a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company, or more casually, a blank check company. That means institutions and rich people have handed over a large sum of money to Ackman to do whatever he wants with it. Typically, a SPAC finds a company to take over, works some magic on it, magic that often involves firing people and cutting back on investment, and then sells it at a profit. But who knows? Trust Ackman with $4 billion is the message. He'll take good care of your money. In other news from the high end, Financial Times columnist Jillian Tett reports that Christie's will hold an online auction of a dozen pairs of Michael Jordan's old shoes. The top lot is expected to fetch up to $550,000. This follows a May Sotheby's auction in which some of his old Air Jordans went for $560,000. In the midst of pandemic and depression, the rich have plenty of disposable income. Now, Portland a city that's seen almost two months of steady protest, which Trump has responded to by deploying federal stormtroopers, disregarding the complaints of the city's mayor, as well as the governor and attorney general of Oregon, who sued the feds. Trump is expanding those deployments with Chicago Next. Here with more is Jason Wilson, a Portland-based journalist whose work appears in The Guardian and Yahoo News. Jason Wilson. Boy, crazy times in your town there. Uh, what, 50 days of protest with escalating violence from the cops and now <laughs> these anonymous thugs in the scene. First of all, what's been going on with the protests over the last, what, four or five weeks? They started at around the same time that they started in every major city in the United States. So Minneapolis reacted first, but but Portland uh, is a city where, where people protest a lot. The left here is is relatively big and and relatively active. And as you know, as was the case everywhere around the United States, I mean, it it wasn't just the usual suspects initially. It wasn't just the activist left. It was a a much broader swathe of the community that that came out and marched. Pretty early on, there was a a sort of bifurcation of, of that protest. And you had one group of protesters who were more 
within the bounds of civility that we're encouraged, all encouraged to observe by various people. And, and we're not interested in explicit confrontations with the police. But you had very quickly um, a nightly ritual sort of became established where a more militant uh, group of protesters were downtown first night of really big protests that some of those folks attacked the Justice Centre, the Montgomery County Justice Centre, which is like has courts and a jail and, and burned it, you know. <laughs> um, so the cops kind of built a wall there and, and for a long time the confrontation sort of happened at that wall outside the Justice Centre with police trying to defend it and protesters obviously trying to get through. The Portland Police Bureau... There's a long history there of accusations of heavy-handed policing of protests. Throughout the Trump era, we've had contentious protests in Portland. And throughout that time, there's been a sense that the Portland Police Bureau come down really hard on leftists and are perhaps a a little too close to the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer and, and, and all of the folks who've come into town over that period of time. Yeah, I've been wondering during all this, where have they been? Where are the Proud Boys and the white supremacists and the neo Nazis? Early on, um, there were kind of sporadic incidents where you saw people coming past in trucks. There, there were there were car attacks. I mean, there've been car attacks around the country. They were showing up, but not in any organised way. I think it's fair to say that that's kind of continued. I think there are just too many people for them to take on uh, to stage a kind of confrontation. Now, as of last night, you've got thousands of people downtown. Um, so I don't I don't think. There's an appetite amongst those guys for confronting, you know, for counter-protesting a group of that size. They just, <laughs> they tend to not like to be outnumbered. <laughs> well, and who needs them when they got the cops doing the work for them? Right, exactly. Um, so, so, but yeah, throughout the Trump era, especially, there's been the sense that Portland police are maybe, um, you know, sympathetic, I guess, to the far-right protesters. They've certainly faced those accusations and, and you know, there have been stories that, uh, reporters, including myself, have done about leaked materials or, you know, just video captured by people on the scene, which shows them acting in a pretty friendly manner towards the far right. And, and you know, and then on the other hand, you've got them firing flashbangs and various kinds of crowd control munitions at people on the left who are involved in counter protests and, and in some cases pretty badly injuring people. So, you know, it's been building up over the Trump era. And, and you know, initially... Protesters were focused on the Portland Police Bureau. The Portland Police Bureau uh, have responded to protesters early on. They responded in a pretty brutal manner. They used a lot of these crowd control munitions like tear gas pretty frequently. They were firing flashbangs again. People were getting hit by canisters. Also, they were going after journalists. So certainly that was the the perception or or the question that was asked because a lot of journalists were beaten up by police, were gassed. The Society for Professional Journalists, the SPJ, felt moved to actually write to the mayor, who's technically the the police commissioner, um, Mayor Ted Wheeler, you know, asking that he bring this under control. The ACLU uh, and another local civil rights law nonprofit, the uh, Oregon Justice Resource Centre, uh, have each sued Portland police, but the ACLU specifically sued in order to get them to lay off journalists and legal observers, and they actually obtained an injunction, um, which has kind of kept rolling, which said that they're not allowed to disperse people who are identified as journalists or legal observers now. The OJRC obtained an injunction stopping them using tear gas. But as we've moved on, it's, uh, you know, the the feds have become the problem uh, and the focus. Yeah, just a, a moment longer on the uh, the locals. Just from watching New York up close, but also around the country, it seems like we don't really have civilian control of the police. You can tell them what to do, but they do whatever the hell they want to. And was that what's going on in Portland too? Right. Well, certainly the Western States Center is a kind of um, civil rights organization here in, in the Pacific Northwest, um, broadly similar to something like the SBLC. They do hate monitoring, but they also do you know other stuff. And Eric Ward is the executive director, and I talked to him yesterday, and, and that was something he said to me. When I asked him about what, what needed to be done with PPB, he said, well, you know, who, who is actually in charge of PPB? I asked Joanne Hardesty, who is, uh, we have a commission system of city government here, so she's one of the city commissioners. I asked her who was in charge of PPB, and, and she said to me, she thought it was Daryl Turner, who's the head of the police union. There was an acting chief of police who actually resigned during this period of protest, and she handed it off to 
uh, an African-American guy who was promoted uh, from captain to chief of police. But, you know, nothing much seems to have changed. And uh, a lot of the decisions actually seem to be made by guys on the line. Um, And they're not listening to the mayor, who's technically their commissioner, and they don't appear to be listening to, you know, some of the more conciliatory things that the chief of police has been saying either. Um, So, yeah, it's troubling. Uh, And as you say, that's that's a question or an impression that other people who are actually in Portland have, have developed, that civilians aren't actually in charge of this police force. And so uh, the uh, protesters uh, took uh, to the uh, the police union headquarters, right? They burned it or tried to? Uh, yes, indeed. They burned down the police union building, which is kind of over the other side of the river from, from downtown. In my lifetime, at least, or my adult life, I, I've never, I don't think, seen such a, a direct and, and kind of mass confrontation with, with police as we've seen in Portland, but but also, you know, Minneapolis and elsewhere. Um, people en masse are having these confrontations with police, and it has to be said, a lot of the time they're winning, they're achieving their objectives. You know, they're burning down precincts or police union headquarters. Last night, federal agents in Portland, despite launching tear gas at people, were forced to retreat within the walls of the federal courthouse, which had already uh, had, had an, an arson attempt on it by protesters. And there seems to be, people are getting battle-hardened. People seem less concerned about having tear gas launched at them. People have developed, you know, tactics or approaches to, to sort of minimise the danger associated with those those crowd control munitions. One doesn't want to overstate it, but, but there is a sort of... Um, you know, there is a reasonably competent insurrectionary uh, force developing, I'd say. Um, certainly people aren't as intimidated uh, as they once might have been by the police. But a lot of the police violence has been directed not just at people who are burning down buildings, but just people who are protesting peacefully, right? Well, yes, and, and reporters as well, as I said, and legal observers. At times it, it has apparently been indiscriminate, but, um, you know, local media outlets and not radical ones. Um, the Portland Tribune is... Uh, you know, a fairly mainstream paper, but they wrote an editorial during the period where journalists seemed to be getting beaten up or gassed a lot, asking if journalists were being deliberately targeted. And the local paper of record is the Oregonian, uh, the local public broadcaster, and the Pamplin Media Group that owns the Tribune, which is kind of like the the second newspaper, roughly. Uh, All of these mainstream media organisations actually signed on to the SPJ's letter to the mayor saying, hey, you know, get these guys to cut it out. Yeah, so uh, it was either completely indiscriminate at first, and and you know, once they said you had to clear clear out, they would just start they would just start swinging their batons and letting off gas. And if you're in the way, too bad. So either it was indiscriminate, but certainly the question was asked as to whether legal observers and journalists were being targeted because they didn't want this stuff to be on the record. I'm speaking with the Portland-based journalist Jason Wilson. So when did these mysterious feds show up? Yeah, well. <laughs> Here's the thing. I mean, there is a federal courthouse down there. From time to time, you know, during protests uh, and counter-protests throughout the Trump era, there's a there's a sort of public square downtown, um, which is actually on top of the car park for the federal courthouse, so it's technically federal property. And, and when protests were permitted there, you know, you would see federal protective services officers get involved. And, they're, and they're, <laughs> there's so many different kinds of cops in this country, Doug. <laughs> so it might be good to explain to the readers, uh, listeners that, um, that these guys tend to be the guys who are in charge of security, basically, for federal buildings. But, you know, they're, usually they're easily identified. They wear their insignia. They show up in riot gear like a, a lot of other cops do. But, but you know, FPS is FPS. But, yeah, in the last couple of weeks, I guess, in, with increasing frequency, we've seen guys showing up. And, and, you know, we've seen this around the country too. You'll remember uh, that in, in DC, we saw various kinds of cops showing up where no one knew really who they were. They weren't wearing badges. They wouldn't identify themselves. Um, and, and that phenomenon has been happening in Portland too. So it's really difficult to say sometimes which agency these guys represent. What we can say is that the the Attorney General of Oregon has actually launched a lawsuit trying to prevent some of the tactics that these guys have been using, which includes dragging people off the street into re- unmarked rental vans, you know, for interrogation. They're not actually arresting them. There's no paperwork. They just no ask questions for a few hours and release them. Yeah. And that's the point that the Attorney General's complaint makes, that none of these people have been arrested. 
there's no probable cause that's being shown for them to be arrested. But, uh, you know, in her suit, she, she names four agencies, US Marshals Service, uh, the Federal Protective Service, FPS, who we mentioned before, Customs and Border Patrol, and the Department of Homeland Security in her suit. And she also interestingly names 10 John Doe's. So she's going after individual officers. But even in her complaint, she talks about um, them using, and I quote, unmarked vehicles to drive around downtown Portland uh, and removing people from public without either arresting them or stating the basis for an arrest. So, you know, she's talking about the first, fourth and fifth amendments. And, and I guess implicitly the 10th amendment is a play as well because the governor has asked that, uh, you know, the Fed stop doing this. The mayor has asked that the Fed stop doing this. Both of Oregon's senators um, have also asked Trump to cut it out. So they're doing all this in spite of the fact that the relevant local and state authorities are um, want them to get lost or, or at least want them to stop using these tactics. Um, and, and that hasn't really seemed to have make, made much difference to their behaviour. Now, the um, acting Homeland Security Secretary, and I just learned on Twitter earlier from a law professor that uh, he's actually been in office longer than an acting secretary is supposed to be, so he's not really legally <laughs> entitled to be running the Department of Homeland Security. But uh, he listed some offenses, the improbably named Chad Wolf listed some offenses, and they were like graffiti in courthouses. So they're sending in these you know, secret police who are acting extremely violently in order to enforce graffiti uh, control. I mean, what... What exactly are they doing there? Well, to some extent, some of their activities do seem to be about protecting the federal courthouse. So, so, but they're also escalating the situation. So if they came in uh, in order to prevent people uh, daubing graffiti on the outside of the federal courthouse, well, last night they had people, you know, trying, trying to take the, the cladding, the siding off, off, off the courthouse. Um, you know, they've actually exacerbated the problem. And, you know, um, I have talked to people, um, various people during my reporting, who've suggested that perhaps that, that's the intention, to kind of provoke some kind of act on, behalf, on the part of protesters that justifies all of this talk about Antifa terrorists and, and what have you. Um, so, so perhaps they're actually here in order to, to escalate things for the political benefit of Donald Trump. Um, you know, who's, who seems to be wanting now to fight election on the basis that if you elect Joe Biden, you're, you're going to have this radical leftist in power. He seems to have changed tack from Biden's senile to, to, to Biden's uh, a, a radical, and Bernie Sanders is pulling his strings, basically. So, so, But who can say? I think it's fair to ask that question, given that we don't know who these guys are. We don't know what their mission is. We haven't really been given any satisfactory account of what they're doing there or why they're doing the things that they're doing. They seem to know nothing about crowd control. Right. Well, they're not. Not that that's why they're there, but, you know, you know the stated purpose, uh, uh, they don't seem to be very good at it. So there's got to be some other purpose. Right. Well, they're not municipal police officers. I mean, they're not. FPS might do some stuff that, that resembles um, municipal policing now and then in ex- extreme circumstances. But the marshal service don't don't uh, aren't trained uh, or experienced in this kind of work. Customs and Border Patrol aren't trained or experienced in this kind of work. And DHS can mean a lot of things, as you know. There are a lot of sort of sub-agencies under DHS. So if there are DHS people there, you know, who knows who they are? Um, but you wouldn't expect them to be able to manage crowds because they're not, they're not trained for it. They're probably not equipped for it. And um, if anything, they've been more violent and more brutal um, than, than PPB has in, in, in some ways and, and acted with even less restraint. PPB has, has its critics, but I'm not aware of them pulling people into unmarked vans, uh, you know, for arbitrary detention. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a really odd and, and scary situation. And given that, the peculiar thing is that people don't seem to be particularly scared at the moment. People, people are angry and, and there's a growing kind of defiance. In the last few nights, we've had uh, women dressed in yellow identifying themselves as mothers who have um, interposed themselves between police and other protesters and, and, and have been tear-gassed for their trouble uh, on Sunday night, for instance. But when you have the Attorney General, who, who's a Democrat, when you have 
what seemed to be workaday Portlanders identifying themselves as mothers going out into the street to have these confrontations with cops. I mean, it, it's sort of like, as I said at the top, you know, we're not just talking about the radical left anymore. We're talking about uh, a provocation that's dragging in liberals as well. Now, with Trump, it's really hard to figure out if that guy can think beyond the next 10 minutes. So, so when people attribute strategies to him, I often wonder, you know, it's just whatever is going through his head at the moment. But yeah, what, what does this mean in the larger picture? I mean, is, this a, is Portland a dress rehearsal for his larger operations around the country? Are people thinking about that, talking about that? Well, that appears to be the plan. The president last night uh, was on Fox News doing a town hall with Sean Hannity. And, and, and he, that's, he said as much to, to Hannity's obvious delight. He said that cities run by radical, <laughs> all of these cities apparently run by radical leftists. So you it's really me, delusional. Anyway, <laughs> these radical left cities around the country, he's going to be sending federal agents or secret police is, is, is a fair description in to kind of deal with what that they won't allow their police to deal with. So, yeah. Then that's a ludicrous characterization of the Portland police who've been plenty brutal for a, quite a long, long time. So it's not like they're you know a bunch of pussycats. Yeah, no. Look, I, I think a lot of this is probably driven by conservative media to the extent that the, impre- the president is enthusiastic about it. You know, he, he seems to live for these dopamine hits he gets when, you know, Hannity says something nice about him. It's almost like a, a Skinner box kind of thing. It's, it's just, a, you know, a Pavlovian response to, to positive, positive attention in, in conservative media. But, you know, Bill Barr is in the chain here as well, and he's a lot of things, but but not probably not a fool. Uh, and so there's a kind of escalation towards authoritarianism here that is, is in keeping ideologically with a, a lot of the things that Bill Barr has said over the years. Um, and it's certainly a move that, that sort of centralises power by just sort of ignoring the Tenth Amendment, right? Like it, 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 it says it arrogates to the federal government the right to to carry out municipal policing um, if, if they're not satisfied with the way in which cities are handling it. But, you know, I, I, like all of this stuff, I think, I think there is an, an electoral purpose here. And Trump has this theory, which, which changes, but, but he always has a theory about how he's going to get elected. And, and he makes that obvious in the things that he does. And I think that, um, I think that law and order is his catch cry has been for, for, for a couple of months now since the protest started. And so, you know, exhibiting that by beating up some protesters is probably something that he thinks is going to help him. And then finally, where are the local libertarians? Where are the Bundys and such who, you know, uh, really don't like or profess not to like uh, the expansion of armed federal power? Well, there's plenty of it going on. Are any of your local libertarians complaining? Ammon Bundy now lives in, uh, he lives over in Idaho, um, and he's been very, very active in anti-lockdown protests um, and anti-mask protests, and some of them have almost resulted in confrontations. Interestingly, Ammon himself yesterday, uh, I believe it was, said that he was supportive of the Black Lives Matter movement, and he, he said things like this before. He, he When the caravan was approaching, you remember, during the midterms, um, he said things that, that appeared to be supportive of them and, you know, put, put some of his supporters offside. Um, he personally has a, has a kind of consistency about these things. He just distrusts the federal government, um, no matter who's there. As to everyone else, you know, I, I've been writing about and looking at, at, at the Boogaloo movement. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've heard about them who are nominally insurrectionary right libertarians who, who are constitutionalists and all that kind of stuff. And they're very upset about not being able to own a rocket launcher. <laughs> but, uh, but um, you know, when, when someone else's constitutional freedom is on the line, you, you'll find that, they, that they're happy to make an exception. And, and, you know, Trump's vocabulary about Antifa terrorists helps them do that. The, the idea, perhaps, is that people, these, these people aren't citizens in the, in the full sense. And, you know, maybe not even human. So they're criminals. So they don't... They don't enjoy the same rights as, um, you know, someone who wants to put put a, a bump stock on, on their AR-15. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, motivated reasoning abounds as always, but there hasn't been much evident or visible support from the libertarian right for these protests, that's for sure. That was the Portland-based journalist Jason Wilson. A footnote in Ammon Bundy, leader of the 2016 occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Oregon.
He had been slated to go to a Black Lives Matter demonstration in Boise earlier this week, but canceled because of threats from some of his allies in the so-called Patriot Right. Funnily, Bundy's adversary in the land occupation was the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM. Googling Ammon Bundy and BLM turns up some conflicting results. Wednesday night, the feds tear-gassed a crowd that included Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler. Sometimes this feels like the early stages of a civil war, driven not by geography, as the last one was, but by ideology, though Wheeler himself is hardly what one would call a leftist. But to Trump and his stormtroopers, he is. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of United Chaos and Anarchy by the Scottish band The Exploited from 1987. Next, South America, where COVID is running wild, as are repressive politicians and drug gangs. And, as you'll hear, some of the violence unleashed by the drug gangs may be extending up to Chicago, which has seen a rise in shootings and which Trump's stormtroopers can't do a damn thing about. Here's Forrest Hilton, who teaches history and politics at the National University of Columbia in Medellin. You can find a lot of his topical work on the London Review of Books website. Forrest Hilton. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. First, let's talk about the COVID landscape in your uh, in South America. Um, how are things to start with in Colombia? Well, you know, Colombia was able to maintain through early quarantine uh, a relatively manageable caseload, which of course was the idea of going into quarantine. Colombia went into quarantine. Uh, I believe about mid-March, and it was interesting because the center-right mayor of Bogota, representing the Green Party, was kind of the most insistent and out front about the necessity to go into quarantine early and to buy time so that the health system wouldn't collapse. And she was able to basically uh, force the president to adopt similar measures nationwide sooner than he wanted to, and therefore undoubtedly saved hundreds if not thousands of lives, that's the good news. However, because 60% of the people in Colombia's um, labor force work in the so-called informal economy, obviously depend basically on daily cash flow in order to survive, and they simply can't stay in their homes and, and honor the quarantine, even though they're not necessarily essential workers. So that means that even though the quarantine seemed effective, and was effective for a considerable period of time, eventually people had to go out and earn their keep. And therefore, there was absolutely no way to honor the quarantine, and it was simply a matter of time before cases began to take off. And they have really begun to spike in the past several weeks or so. Medellin and Bogota are the only two cities in the country with really considerable medical infrastructure, medical research facilities, university faculties of medicine, and so forth. And my understanding is that Bogota is at slightly more than 90% of capacity in ICUs, and I believe we're at the same in Medellin. Now, if you go to less developed areas in Colombia, like Barranquilla on the Caribbean coast, which has more deaths than Medellin, has had more cases than Medellin, uh, and has had even greater corruption in the healthcare system than we have in Medellin, because Colombia's healthcare system was privatized along U.S. lines, which opened tremendous opportunities for corruption. On the Caribbean coast, the health care system is essentially just corruption. Therefore, you know, they've had real trouble there and are going to have continued trouble in the future, although it's possible that the worst is over. But again, outside of Medellin or Bogota, you're looking at very precarious 
uh, healthcare infrastructure. And once you get outside the kind of departmental capitals of the regions into the countryside and the smaller towns, well, there's really no health infrastructure whatsoever to deal with this. Okay, now what about your, your neighbor uh, to the southeast, uh, Brazil? Well, Brazil obviously is uh, trying to compete with the United States in terms of kind of both approach. This is an interesting fact. The federal system in both the United States and Brazil allows for something approaching low-intensity warfare between the president and opposition governors that he doesn't like. It's hard to say who takes a page book from who when it's Trump and Bolsonaro. I mean, they're just cut from the same cloth, although, you know, Trump is the top dog and Bolsonaro is kind of the, to some degree, the spurned lover, but doesn't pay enough, doesn't really pay enough attention for it to matter because he's, he's very loyal in that respect. So... Bolsonaro has been battling governors in the way that Trump has. He's been bad-mouthing them, and he has been belittling them. Meanwhile, he's tested positive again for, for COVID-19. So even though he has been touting uh, hydroxychloroquine as a, as a miracle cure and apparently trying to sell it, there was a lot of speculation, in fact, that Bolsonaro was not sick with COVID-19, but was merely pretending to be sick in order to sell his miracle cure. It appears that the third health minister in his many months is probably headed out the door. Uh, He's a general who's been trying to tow the party line on sort of hydroxychloroquine as a a potential cure-all. But Bolsonaro's a little bit like Stalin. It kind of doesn't matter how well you've towed the line. Kind of when your time comes, you're out. So... Bolsonaro is about to bring in a new health minister, apparently. And what's interesting is that the current health minister is a general. That's never happened in Brazil. That was not the case during the military dictatorships from 1964 to 1985. Generals did not run the health ministry. Only now has that happened. And when the general who is the current health minister steps down, there's still going to be 20 generals sort of encrusted in the ministry, essentially running day-to-day policy in the health ministry. So people have talked about, oh, there could be sort of a military dictatorship in Brazil. For all intents and purposes, there is a military dictatorship in Brazil. Yeah, no, well, there's talk some weeks ago that Bolsonaro is essentially the, uh, the, the victim of a coup, and that, that he, nobody's paying attention to him, and the generals are really running the show. Did it ever turn out to be true? What, you know, what, is this, what is the status of his grip on power at this point? To a large degree, that's just been the case all along. I mean, he's there because the military wanted him there to some degree. If they hadn't wanted him there, he couldn't have gotten there. And then he's governed to some degree with their permission. But he, he is, he's very much like a, a badly behaved child. And the generals kind of treat him like one. You know, one could argue that maybe they should use a little bit more uh, authority with him. But essentially, he, he doesn't run, obviously, the country day to day. He doesn't really set policy, per se, besides kind of riling up his base, which has never been much more than 30% of the population and remains at about 30% of the population. Parallels between him and Trump are really uncanny. I mean, it's, you know, it's roughly the same numbers. They are uncanny. They are the same numbers. And furthermore, Doug, they are due to, in large measure, the same factor, which is the infrastructure of the evangelical movement in both countries. So Bolsonaro's popular support is down to that, that, that hardcore base, right? I mean, what about the broader population today? Does he have any uh, support there? The, the broader population, uh, he, he's record numbers of disapproval, you know, well over 50%. And at the same time, the question is, well, how much does that matter? It's Brazil. The people are not out in the streets, and they're unlikely to get out in the streets anytime soon. I mean, I sure hope to be proven wrong. And there, and there was a glimmer of hope with a strike by anti-fascist, anti-Bolsonaro motorcycle delivery men and women. So that was extremely promising. They were actually able to shut down some Brazilian cities, at least Sao Paulo, uh, with that strike. And we hope to see more of that kind of activity in the future. But the the, the essential passivity of Brazilians before the pandemic, and especially now that the pandemic is upon them, um, is in contrast to other countries where you know popular movements are going to shape a little bit more what outcomes look like. That means that in Brazil, mostly what's going on is palace intrigue, but it's a little bit broader insofar as Bolsonaro is essentially trying to eliminate the judicial branch altogether. 
and doing what he can to buy the votes that he needs in Congress to keep any impeachment processes moving forward, because something like 17 or 18 different processes have have been presented, but have not moved even one inch, because the head of the lower house of Congress keeps saying, it's not the time for impeachment. It's not the time for impeachment. And so therefore, Congress seems unlikely to do anything. And the judicial branch is fighting for its very life. And it remains to be seen whether they will actually be able to put Bolsonaro's sons in jail uh, for their crimes. And, I mean, Bolsonaro himself is involved in some of the crimes that they're investigating, as far as we can tell. And at the center of the storm is is Bolsonaro's lawyer, uh, who was caught hiding, right, a murder suspect, who is essentially head of the paramilitary forces in Rio. He's been a friend of Bolsonaro's for 30 years. Uh, he was hiding out in Bolsonaro's lawyer's house when they caught him, and it just remains to be seen whether he turns state's evidence or not. Another parallel with Trump and Bolsonaro, I mean, the, the, the reliance on these corrupt idiot sons. It's remarkable. Yeah, yeah. But again, I mean, Brazil, it's like there's this other dimension there where Bol- whereby Bolsonaro's sons are considerably more criminal insofar as they are involved in what I would call narco-paramilitary activities um, and sort of organized crime and, you know, hitmen for hire and this, but intimately involved in this, not distant guys in suits and ties who kind of don't get their hands dirty with that sort of thing. No, these guys are up to their necks in it. So it's essentially a a different level of... uh, Direct action, shall we say? <laughs> I know uh, one more um, um, COVID review. Uh, Bolivia, what's going on there? So Bolivia has been interesting, of course, because there was a, a coup last October, which really lacked any legitimacy whatsoever. Uh, an unknown senator um, from a really peripheral department, who I think had taken in fifty thousand votes in order to get elected was catapulted by the Bolivian military in conjunction with the Brazilian military because the Bolivian coup of October was coordinated with Brazil to some degree. It was run out of Brazil. And this coup brought to power this kind of unknown fascist senator, all of them with Trump or Trump's base, I should say, because Trump obviously doesn't give a a commitment to religious fundamentalism. In Trump's case, it's not a personal commitment. It's a political commitment. But in the case of Bolsonaro, or uh, the woman, uh, Janine Añez, who's in power in Bolivia, uh, it's, a, it's a personal commitment to right-wing religious fanaticism, right? Um, so Trump obviously has right-wing religious fanatics as the core of his base. He himself is not one, but he knows how to talk to them, and he has his people. And that is very similar in the case of Bolsonaro. So the parallels with respect to the importance of religion to the political coalition uh, are there the, the the involvement with criminal activities related to business activities that mean that the president essentially has to declare war on the judiciary in order to keep himself and his family from being investigated? That's a pretty remarkable parallel, right? Yeah, and so uh, what's where's uh, Evo Morales now? What's up with him? So Evo Morales's candidate is winning. But, but Morales personally, where is he? Evo Morales and his vice president are in Argentina, and the candidate that they picked, Luis Arce, who had been the economy minister when they were in charge, Evo Morales and Alvaro Garcia were in charge from 2006 until 2019, when they were unseated in this fascist coup that brought Janine Añez to power. Now, Janine Añez is running herself. She said she wouldn't, but she's running. She was polling around 15%. But her handling of this COVID crisis has chipped away at her legitimacy as she has kind of relied more and more on the military who put her in power in the first place to continue governing through one of the most authoritarian sort of corona lockdowns in the entire Latin American region, where these lockdowns have been pretty authoritarian, as you would expect, given the history uh, of Latin American police and security forces. So in Bolivia, you know, all kinds of human rights abuses under uh, the pretext of COVID. Also, the political persecution of Evo Morales's political allies has continued under the pretext of COVID. Uh, The president, she tried to postpone elections, but then she was essentially forced to schedule them for September 6th. 
And right now, what they're trying to do is get Evo Morales' political party disbarred because they're afraid that uh, Morales' candidate, Luis Arce, is going to win in the first round. Because as I've written, the Bolivian right managed to get itself into power, basically taking advantage of the center-right and the center-right's kind of discourse of democracy and democratic elections. That was the door through which the fascists were able to enter and take power. And they have remained in power since October, but the power, their power has become ever more, let's say, brittle and illegitimate. And obviously they're not doing so well if everything indicates that Evo Morales' candidate could take it in the first round. So it would seem logical, well, then why don't they just all get together? Well, that was the question the entire time that Evo Morales was in power. The right in Bolivia was never able to unite or get its act together and defeat Evo Morales democratically. That's why they had to overthrow him via a military coup. And without essentially the military running things, they can't really stay in power. I'm speaking with the historian Forrest Hilton in Medellin, Colombia. All right, now back to uh, Colombia. What's going on with the death squads and the, the narco terrorists? There's different layers of the kind of violence and, and terror that are taking place and have been taking place in Colombia. So on the one hand, as Human Rights Watch reported recently, what we would call narco-paramilitary kind of death squad mafias have been essentially setting their own rules when it comes to the curfew and what's allowed and what's not and when it's allowed and when it's not. But this is actually predictable because that's how power in Colombia works. The government in Bogota or the, the government in Medellin, they don't actually govern the entirety, the entirety of the territory. So whether it's the nation or the region, there are these peripheries in which state sovereignty doesn't exist, in which there is no legitimate monopoly uh, on the use of the force of arms by the state. And to the extent that the state uses arms, it, it does so in a way that's viewed as totally illegitimate by the civilian population. So... With these neo-narco-paramilitary mafias in the kind of peripheral frontier regions, I guess like 11 of 32 of Colombia's departments, this is how the, the lockdown is being enforced, has led to something like nine murders uh, in the past few months. But according to kind of social movement organizations that are tracking this sort of thing, uh, Colombian police and security forces have murdered 30 people in the same period of time. So that means as bad as the neo-narco-paramilitaries are, the actual government forces are 300% worse. And what, what kinds of people are getting murdered? The people who are getting murdered most often are uh, ex-FARC combatants, right? The FARC and former President Juan Manuel Santos concluded a peace process in 2016, which has not brought peace to the country, but it has led to the destruction of the FARC. And that means their physical elimination from the face of the earth. I forget what the tally of ex-FARC combatants murdered since the peace deal was signed, but it's, you know, runs into the hundreds. And they kind of keep picking them off week after week. So um, people being murdered and disappeared, ex-FARC combatants are pretty, pretty high up there. Other people being murdered and disappeared would be leaders of indigenous movements, of Afro-Colombian movements. And this is just like in the last like week or 10 days or something like that, where one indigenous leader uh, was murdered, I think in Cauca in the Southwest, two Afro-Colombian uh, leaders were murdered also in the Southwest. So social movement leaders, indigenous, Afro, and why? Because their territories are these peripheral zones where the state doesn't exercise sovereignty and in many cases, there are disputes by remnants of guerrilla organizations and these neo-narco-paramilitary organizations with the army generally and police collaborating with the neo-narco-paramilitary organizations. There's another layer on top of that, which is that these neo-narco-paramilitary organizations in Colombia, which grew out of sort of counterinsurgent state formation, they're allied with different factions of Mexican organized crime. And Mexican organized crime operates on a different scale altogether than Colombian organized crime. So they actually have the power to influence kind of the outcomes of these disputes. So you have what appear to be local disputes, let's say, in the city of Medellin or in the lowland regions of Antioquia, the region of which Medellin is capital. And, and yet, you know, they're not entirely local insofar as different factions of organized crime depend on their and, in fact, different 
dissident guerrilla groups, they depend on their ties to Mexicans to sell the coca paste or even the, the, the refined, the finished cocaine to the Mexicans. So all these groups are in the cocaine business and the cocaine business itself obviously generates a lot of violence because there's no mechanism for debt collection. And that's the way that credit, the credit system is enforced uh, via hitmen for hire. And I would say that one of the ways that these organizations, in terms of like sort of setting their own rules for the lockdown in, in the peripheral region, I, I read that uh, some of the deaths occurred in the Afro-Colombian city of Tumaco in the southwest. Tumaco is one of the most important cocaine export centers kind of in all of Colombia because it's right there on the Pacific. And there's a really strong connection between the Colombian Pacific and the Mexican Pacific. And so when they set a lockdown, uh, a curfew hour of 5 p.m., well, you know what they're doing after 5 p.m., right? I mean, they're, they're, they're exporting massive volumes of cocaine, and of course, nobody can see it. And they're usually doing it in collaboration with the armed forces and the police. And so these, you know, narco death squads and uh, in alliance with at least parts of the state, is there any resistance to them or do they have the complete upper hand? Well, I mean, the resistance in the, in, in the more peripheral regions, which is to say the Amazon, the Pacific, and some of kind of the lowland regions leading down into the Caribbean, uh, my region is not connected to the Amazonian region except through the cocaine business because my city is the capital of the cocaine business in Colombia, similar to Sinaloa in Mexico, and also similar to Sinaloa in Mexico in terms of its power versus, you know, any other organization nationwide. But of course, they've got tentacles into the Amazon. But the links to the Pacific lowlands and the kind of Caribbean lowlands, those are direct links from my city. And so you can't actually divorce uh, cocaine exports in the lowland from uh, money laundering and finance um, in, in, in the highland uh, big city capitals. So in terms of resistance, there is indeed resistance. And in my city of Medellin, where probably more, and my region of Antioquia, there have been more um, social movement, trade union movement, student movement, etc., activists murdered and disappeared here than in any other part of the country, which is not surprising given that it's the sort of narco-paramilitary capital of the country. But nevertheless, popular resistance continues. And in the past several years, it's been led by the student movement because as they've sort of privatized and massified higher education, they've essentially created a massive student proletariat that has vaguely radical democratic ideas. They're more liberal than anything else, but they tend towards radical democracy. And in Colombia, any radical democratic demand is actually revolutionary because the country has always been so right wing. So the student movement is sort of in a, in a phase of regroupment right now, except that they're, they're demanding that all tuition fees of all sorts be waived completely and that it be absolutely zero for everyone. And so they're really pushing for that right hard right now nationwide, and they seem to be achieving it. But in terms of confronting the narco-paramilitary forces in the neighborhoods that they run, that's essentially impossible. And the resistance that exists to the narco-paramilitary forces tends to be what's, what's left of the FARC guerrillas, which they call the, the sort of dissident guerrilla factions, and then the ELN, which is another one of these guerrilla groups that's been around since like the Cuban Revolution and was inspired by it. In fact, the founders of the ELN had like fought at the Bay of Pigs or something and returned to, you know, uh, set up the ELN, these sort of heroic new left narratives of yesteryear. But ELN basically is involved in, uh, you know, guns and drugs and kidnapping and extortion and, and this, this sort of thing, just as the dissident guerrilla factions are. So that's kind of how they um, sustain themselves. That's their form of social reproduction, if you like. Basically, we have this gigantic transnational uh, gangster network that's covering much of Latin America now, right? Well, I think, Doug, we have to say that it's covering much of the Americas because the links between Chicago and Mexico are so tight and, and so crucial to the entire Sinaloa operation. But essentially, from Brazil all through the Amazon, we could say that this is a field day for organized crime and mafias of all kinds, because as these sort of states become increasingly brittle and authoritarian and sort of imposing authority that they're actually incapable of really implementing, 
obviously th that creates the widest imaginable berth for organized crime and even sort of disorganized crime. Because if we look at what's happening in Chicago, all of the cocaine comes from Colombia and all of it comes through Mexico and Chicago is the key to the Sinaloa operation. But the actual cliques, as they call them in Chicago, on the south side, on the west side, some of them on the west side know plenty about Sinaloa and, connect, and are connected to it, but on the south side, you know, have them never heard of Sinaloa. There is no kind of boss. These are all completely decentralized organizations. That's why they call them cliques. They're not very large and they're not building up into something larger either. So I don't mean to sketch a sort of Hobbesian worst case scenario, but there is an element of that in what we see, whether it's Chicago, whether it's Sinaloa, whether it's Medellin, or whether it's Sao Paulo, organized crime is really sort of making moves. And another thing that's worth mentioning, as small and medium business people run into debt problems, right? They can't pay their bills. And obviously none of the government mechanisms that would allow them to stay afloat are even where they exist, they're not working. And in many cases, they don't even actually exist. Then people are desperate for any source of credit that might allow their business to stay afloat and, and they'll accept credit on almost any terms. So again, this is like for the mafia, this is like pennies from heaven essentially, um, because they can end up owning an enormous amount of property and businesses, small and medium size, without anybody really knowing about it. You know, these essentially become sort of zombie businesses and they're protected, but they own it. That was Forrest Hilton, a historian of Latin America who teaches at the National University of Columbia in Medellin. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some more old punk, this drug-stabbing time by The Clash. Till next week, bye. <laughs>